This show is a part of the podcast network of the Walled Garden Philosophical Society, an international community of philosophers and seekers dedicated to the pursuit of truth, wisdom, virtue, and the divine, wherever they may be found. To find out more, go to thewalledgarden.com. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Soul Searching with Seneca. And today we're continuing our focus on letter number nine on philosophy and friendship, and particularly continuing our focus on how Seneca describes the sage. And, you know, this has been a particularly interesting letter for me to really dive deeply into because it's really revealed a few of the ways that Seneca thinks about, you know, ultimately how we should be living our own lives and how he's aiming to live his life, right? Because the sage obviously was the the ultimate person to the, to the, to the Stoics. It was the supreme being, right? The person who, if we could become anything, uh, that would probably be the best for us. And uh, so he's got some very interesting insights here, and I'm going to continue reading from verse 16, and I think we'll go all the way to verse 20 today, and then the next episode will go 20 to the end. So anyway, he says the following, quote, People may say, but what sort of existence will the wise man have if he be left friendless when thrown into prison? or when stranded in some foreign nation, or when delayed on a long voyage, or when out upon a lonely shore. I say that his life will be like that of Jupiter, who, amid the dissolution of the world, when the gods are confounded together and nature rests for a space from her work, can retire into himself and give himself over to his own thoughts. In some such a way as this the sage will act. He will retreat into himself and live with himself. Now, pause there for a second and mention that there's a note that refers to this kind of analogy he's drawing between Jupiter and the sage. Uh, It says here in the notes, uh, this refers to the Stoic conflagration. After certain cycles, their world was destroyed by fire. Uh, Reading a book called Roman Stoicism by E.V. Arnold. Uh, and also from Chrysippus's uh, fragments as well. So I'd really like to dive into that stuff and, and find out a little bit more about, I guess, you might say the astrology or the, um, the, the deeper theology behind Stoicism. But for now, we're going to move on and take the analogy as it is. So he continues, As long as he is allowed to order his affairs according to his judgment, he is self-sufficient and marries a wife. He is self-sufficient and brings up children. He is self-sufficient, and yet could not live if he had to live without the society of man. Natural promptings, and not his own selfish needs, draw him into friendships. For just as other things have for us an inherent attractiveness, so has friendship. As we hate solitude and crave society, as nature draws men to each other, so in this manner also there is an attraction which makes us desirous of friendship. End quote. All right, so I want to pause here for a moment and riff on a couple of words uh, that really stand out to me as vital, you know, to this image of the Stoic sage who Seneca is describing. And those words are natural promptings. 
Right, because you might say that, well, okay, well, let, let's look at Stoicism in general, right? What's the ultimate goal of Stoicism? It's to live in agreement with nature. You know, when you are perfectly living in agreement with nature, that's when you have found the, you know, I guess the form of Stoic enlightenment, that eudaimonia, you know, that flourishing in life. And the way that you kind of get there, you, you know, it seems from what Seneca is suggesting here is by following those natural promptings that draw you in. And and here's how you could kind of think of this. Well, on one side of the, the aisle, you might think, okay, well, everything that humans do is a natural prompting because everything that humans do is within the bounds of nature. You know, we're not bigger than nature. Nature's way bigger than us. And so everything that we do is just a natural flowing of of, of behavior and events, right? But you could also say that if you bring it even closer to us, you say, well... You can recognize in your own life that there are times when you kind of pervert your natural inclinations. You can pervert the things that would be good for you by, you know, adding these extra motivations that are either unnecessary, unethical, uh, or, or just, just not even really good for you, right? And he talks about the friendship here, right? The, the, the sage isn't somebody who has these external needs for the friendship, but simply wants to have friends because of a natural inclination that we all have as human beings to be connected to the people around us, right? And by doing that, by following the natural inclination and not setting these terms for friendship and not uh, trying to get something out of the friendship which only seeks to pervert that natural inclination, by doing that, the sage is living in agreement with nature. Now, obviously, Seneca is talking about sagehood and and friendship here, but if we really want to go deeper, there's a question that we can ask ourselves when we when we learn this way of thinking, right? This way of following our natural inclinations and not perverting our aims, right? And the question we might ask ourselves is, how much of my life, how many of my relationships are rooted and founded upon corrupt motivations, you know? And that's a really important question that we have to ask ourselves, especially if we're aiming at anything close to the kind of flourishing that is promised from a philosophy like Stoicism. And one thing that we have to notice is that corrupt seeds lead to corrupt fruits, right? And so if your friendship is based on corrupt aims, meaning I want to get something out of this, right, then... It's, it's not going to be the best kind of friendship that it could be. It's not going to flourish in the way that it could. But if it is based on those natural inclinations, that natural desire for friendship and connection, uh, then, you know, it's going to give you what you need out of it, what we all need as human beings. And, you know, I just think this is such an interesting point that... I, I don't know how deep it can go, but, you know, I'd like to continue to really wrestle with this. How can we reach that point where we are so in tune with our natural desires that that's the way that we live our life, right? And, 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 we, and we rid ourselves of these external motivations that we kind of tend to fall into as we are kind of enculturated, right? And I think that one of the surest ways that you can work towards uh, decorrupting those motivations 
is to pay attention to what we always talk about in Stoicism, which is the Logos, right? Now, the Logos, you could think of it as articulated truth. You know, in the Bible, it is the Word, right? It's Jesus Christ is the Word. It's articulated truth, articulated wisdom. And, and another way to think of it is articulated truth about the way that you really feel, the way that you really think, right? Because often we'll play these tricks on ourselves where, you know, we'll say that we are acting out of one motivation, but really deep down, you know, in the world of Carl Jung's unconscious, right, in the unconscious part of you, uh, really there's there's a negative motivation that's playing out, but we don't recognize it because we play hide and seek with ourselves. You know, we'll go out there and we'll put on the mask, put on the persona, the face that we put out to society, and we often think that that's who we are, but really there's those those uh, deeper motivations within us, and that is the Logos. That's an understanding of really how you truly feel and think. And once you have gone below the surface and you've seen what your true motivations are, right, then you've started the process of building a really honest relationship with yourself. And that honesty that you have with yourself will reap absolute amazing rewards in your life, right? Because you can you can then tell yourself the truth from now on. How am I really acting? How am I really what am what are my real motivations here? You know, that is the logos. And one of the best ways that you can do this is by just watching yourself in your life as if you don't even know who you are. You know, first you might even uh, decide to come to that place where you understand that really you don't know who you are, right? But when you watch yourself, you'll see that you do all kinds of things that you know you shouldn't do, or you you do all kinds of things that just draw you into them, and and uh, even good things. You know, you you'll find that you're naturally drawn to some things that are really beneficial to you, but you might not spend enough time on them because you're spending your time elsewhere on other things. But if you watch yourself as if you don't know yourself, that's a great way to tap into the Logos, that that deeper truth of who you actually are. And once you build that kind of relationship with yourself, then you can do the very necessary work of changing those actions, right? Because if you want to change your actions, you at least first need to understand why you were doing the things that you were doing, right? And so if some of your friendships are based on corrupt motivations then you can at least be honest with yourself and say, you know what, I do feel like this and I am motivated by that. And you don't need to be judgmental of those motivations and judgmental of, you know, the way that you feel, right? Because it's just the way that you feel, right? It's not wrong or right, but what is wrong or right is whether or not you continue to act based on those motivations, right? And that's what we're really concerned with here. The feeling will change over time, right? But the action has to be changed and you cannot change the action unless you actually know first why you were acting in a certain way. So anyway, I'm going to continue with the letter, but I I just need you to try this at home. You know, watch yourself as if you don't know who you are. It's one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got and it completely changed the way that I try to develop my character. So anyway, he continues, he says, quote, Nevertheless, though the sage may love his friends dearly, often comparing them with himself and putting them ahead of himself, yet all the good will be limited to his own being. And he will speak the words which were spoken by the very stilbo whom Epicurus criticizes in his letter. 
For Stilbo, after his country was captured and his children and his wife lost, as he emerged from the general desolation alone and yet happy, spoke as follows to Demetrius, called Sacker of Cities because of the destruction he brought upon them, in answer to the question whether he had lost anything. He said, I have all my goods with me. There is a brave and stout-hearted man for you. The enemy conquered, but Stilbo conquered his conqueror, I have lost nothing. He forced Demetrius to wonder whether he himself had conquered after all. My goods are all with me. In other words, he deemed nothing that might be taken from him to be good. We marvel at certain animals because they can pass through fire and suffer no bodily harm. But how much more marvellous is a man who has marched forth unhurt and unscathed through fire and sword and devastation? Do you understand how much easier it is to conquer a whole tribe than to conquer one man? This saying of Stilbo makes common ground with Stoicism. The Stoic also can carry his goods unimpaired through cities that have been burned to ashes, for he is self-sufficient. Such are the bounds which he sets to his own happiness. End quote. Right, so this is wonderful because we're getting the whole picture here of the Stoic sage, right? Somebody who, you know, is self-sufficient, meaning that they still want to have friendships. They're still drawn by their natural inclinations to have relationships and to be connected to people, to, you know, to have whatever makes up the good life, right? However, when it comes to the things that can be given or taken away from them, that theme that runs through Stoicism, you know, don't attach yourself to those things that can be taken away from you, that are given to you by fortune or fate. When it comes to those things, the Stoic sage sees them as something that is external to what he truly needs to be able to, 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 to flourish in life, right? And so if those things are taken away from him, if all of a sudden his home, his family, everything is gone, right? He might say something like Stilbo said, I have all my goods with me. And that's a really powerful idea, right? It goes back to what Seneca taught uh, in an earlier letter where he's talking about, you know, the supremacy of the soul. That's the number one thing. If you could, if you could find value anywhere, that's where you should find value because that's the seed from which everything you see, experience, know, believe, feel, everything that's the seed from which it all springs forth. And so that's the true good. And if you can live your life in such a way that you don't corrupt your motivations, right? And you still want to have the nice things that we have as humans that help us to feel, to feel connected and to feel, you know, as though we are playing a part in this grand play that we call society and life and, and friendships and relationships and all this, right? We still want those things. But at the end of the day, we need to have a way to identify with something higher and deeper, something about ourselves that if those things are taken away from us, we can still find a pathway to some kind of internal flourishing. And, and, and it, it would be wrong to think of this as some kind of selfish pathway to just feeling good all the time, despite what's happening around you, because that's not necessarily it. But you might think of all of the people of history who we learn about who went through the greatest atrocities, the greatest horrors and, and torments in, in their lives, and yet still were able to come out and find a pathway forward to contribute meaningfully to the society and to the world. 
A perfect example is somebody who I'm reading at the moment, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, right? He's a person who was placed in the most horrific conditions that you could imagine. And instead of just allowing that to slowly kill him, what he decided to do was to go within. He went within and he said, well, if I'm going to be going through all of this, and if I'm going to be seeing all of this, I might as well spend my time looking within and looking at my life and seeing how it is that I may have contributed to all this happening. And what he ended up doing was writing a book that, you know, almost single-handedly brought down an entire, you know, an, an entire nation, the Soviet Union, right? And so what we have to realize from history is that people have this unbelievable strength about them where they can be faced with the most terrible things you could imagine and yet still they find a way to dig deep, to go within and find that strength to come out of it with some kind of value, some kind of benefit for the people around them. That's inspiring and that's that's ultimately, uh, you know, that's a kind of act of sagehood, right? It's an act of sagehood because what they do is they go within, you know? They see that everything around them has fallen apart. Everything around them has been taken away from them. But that's not the stuff that makes up who you truly are. You know, the stuff that makes up who you truly are is your soul. It's, it's, it's that part of you, right, that nobody, not fate, not other people, nobody can take that away from you. And I hope that you're starting to see this kind of strange relationship that the Stoic sage has with the external world, right? The things that can be given or taken away from him. It's not as if he doesn't want those things. In fact, he would be glad to have them. Kind of like Seneca said in another episode, if, you know, if these external goods like money or fortune are going to enable me to uh, amplify my virtue, then I'll take it, right? Uh, it's kind of that attitude. But at the same time, he recognizes that if that stuff is taken away, uh, that's not going to be the thing that ruins him, right? because he always knew that that stuff could and likely would be taken away from him as much as it was being given. And so he has this relationship with his soul where if that stuff is absent from his life, he is able to go within and to dig deep and go within his soul and find friendship within, you know, and find care within, uh, find strength within, right? So it's a powerful idea. I want you to meditate that with that for a while because it, it's seriously one that can, can be so transformative for anybody in terms of recognizing where true strength comes from, where true joy and flourishing can come from. Anyway, I'll talk to you next time, and I hope you've enjoyed this episode. <laughs>